empathy isn't a thing that we are that we just inherently have. It is a muscle. You can mm-hmm. practice it. You can get better at it. You can you can lean on it more and and develop it. And and I think that design thinking is like a training program to make sure that you're you're keeping your empathy at its highest level. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about design thinking in student affairs with two authors of the new book, Design Thinking in Student Affairs, along with two students. At a time with so many challenges facing student affairs, we're seeing real calls to innovate and create something new that better serves students, the profession, and all of higher education. Today, we're going to explore how design thinking might help us create something better going forward. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use the promo code SANOW for 30% off all their books and free shipping, including this one. Today's episode is also sponsored by EverFi, the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. EverFi is the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to the conversation and meet our panelists and guests today. I'm so excited to have all of you here. Why don't we start with a little bit of introduction and how you're connected to design thinking. Uh, Julia, we're gonna kick it off with you. Yeah, thanks Keith, I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, Hi everyone, my name is Julia Allworth. I use she, her, hers pronouns. And I'm here today at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where I manage the Innovation Hub. And the Innovation Hub, we hire and train uh, students from every degree and discipline and study level in uh, design thinking. Uh, And they use design thinking to form teams of consultants that work on problems at the university that impact the student experience. So uh, I'm one of the authors of the book and really grateful to be here sharing with all of you today. Thank you. Let's go over to your co-author, Leslie. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Leslie D'Souza. I'm the Director of Strategic Storytelling and Digital Engagement at Western University. And I'm speaking Best title from... ever. Best title ever. I don't <laughs> know. I have had a little bit that, to do with it. it. <laughs> yes, fantastic. <laughs> Might have slipped that storytelling in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm speaking to you today from London, which is on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Lunapiwak, and Atawanrin peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, I have I, I connected with Julia about design thinking uh, back when I was working at Ryerson. I've been working in student affairs for about 15 years, and uh, I kind of started out in um, orientation and student programs, and then I branched out into assessment. Mm-hmm. And I got into design thinking as kind of an alternative way to think about how we do assessment in student affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact of how it's based around a core of empathy really is what shifted how I think about data, how we collect data, what we do with data, uh, and how we work with students. So mm-hmm. I co-author on this book and uh, super excited to be here. And we're missing one of your co-authors. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your third offer, just so we get his mention in here as well. So our third offer is uh, Gavin Henning, and he's a professor at New England College 
in New Hampshire. Um, he's been a longstanding leader in student mm -hmm. affairs. I met Gavin when he was the president of ACPA uh, several years ago, and he's been leading the charge with assessment. And uh, uh, he he was on uh, the Council for the Advancement of Standards in Higher Education. He's been all over the place. Yes. So he's a, he's very, a fabulous very... guest. We've had yes. him on <laughs> around equity-based assessment, and he's got two more books coming out. So we're just going to let Gavin be on this conversation. We'll do this one without <laughs> him. We'll get him on the podcast. Uh, coming up as well. So thanks, thanks for for mentioning him. Uh, and we have two students who are working with you. We're going to kind of bring this all to life for us. Spencer, tell us a little bit about you. Um, hello, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my name is Spencer Key. Uh, he, him, his, and it is my privilege to be the research support writer and editor at U of T's Innovation Hub, where I work under the brilliant guidance of Julia to support all of the project teams uh, just a little bit in whatever way mm -hmm. I can to uh, craft their written deliverables, to make them accessible, easy to read for any sort of audience. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a novice in design thinking. I've really only been um, in this area, so to speak, for the past year with the Innovation Hub, but it's really, really shifted my mindset already. Um, I, I've always been a more quantitative person. As a student, I'm um, double majoring in physics and statistics, so it's all about numbers for me. Mm -hmm. and having to learn how to just appreciate you know something that's not hard data that you can't graph but is equally valuable as information mm -hmm. has has really been um eye-opening for me and it's really augmented all of the rest of my studies and work and everything so i'm really happy to be part of the innovation hub and thanks for uh, having me on the podcast <laughs> yeah we're so glad you're here and i love that mindset i think we're going to hear more about that uh bethlehem let's hear from you yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Bethlehem. I go by she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm a third year pharmacy student at the University of Toronto. And when I'm not chipping away on my computer and developing content, um, or working as a, sorry, as a uh, pharmacy student, I'm also uh, working within the Innovation Hub as a content writer, and I help develop the blog content and share stories from students across the University of Toronto to kind of highlight some of the important needs um, that is highlighted within those stories and share them in a way that is compelling to drive the real ways that we can improve student life on campus. So design thinking actually for me is pretty new, uh, similar to Spencer as well. It's been about a year, uh, a bit over a year now that I've worked within the Innovation Hub. And it's been a really eye-opening experience for me. Um, I realized that there's so much that design thinking can be used for in not only student life, but in different fields. And it's a great way to actually understand the real human needs and create an actual impact um, within whatever community or space that we're in. Something that awesome. I'm really excited of and yeah, I'm excited to explore today. Awesome, I'm so glad you're here. I loved reading the book that you, the authors, uh, dedicated it to students. And so I think that, that was really powerful for me. And uh, I love that you wanted to have two students part of the conversation. I, I'm really excited about that. Let's begin with uh, what is design thinking? Let's begin with some definitions and help folks who are not familiar uh, with some understanding. And I think uh, let's st start with Julia. Why don't you tell us what is design thinking? What are we talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So design thinking, um, as I understand it, is both a method and a mindset. At least that's, uh, that's what we're taught and that's what we know. Um, and it's a method really for innovation that has a set of steps 
to create new things, right? That better meet people's needs. But it's also a mindset and a way of doing things. And as, as I've worked more in design thinking, I've come to learn that the mindset and the, and the doing of it and the thinking about things as, um, you know, failure is learning and all these concepts that we learn is actually more important than the set of steps that we present to you in the book. Um, a few more things I'll say about design thinking is that it really is a process for better understanding how people experience wicked problems. So uh, we can talk a little bit more about that later, but wicked problems are these really sort of tangly, messy problems that are multiple problems all in one. And it's based on the idea that people support what they create. So it's about bringing people into the process of the design, designing with the people who are going to be the end um, beneficiaries of whatever the design is so that they're really bringing their own lived experience into the process. Mm -hmm. I love this because I think uh, so many of the challenges we face in our world today really are wicked problems, but we also live in a time where we want the simplest binary thinking either or, and I love wicked problems really is not just both and, but both and times so many different things. Um, Leslie, what would you add to design thinking? Does it go by different names? Are there different definitions? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, I think the, the fact that it is both like kind of an ethos and a method uh, mm. mean that sometimes people will say design thinking and they mean kind of the philosophy or they mean yeah. like the mindset. And sometimes they're talking about the specific set of steps, you know, that Stanford mm -hmm. D School put out. And mm -hmm. then if you're talking about specific process, there's a few different ones that, that are slightly different from each other. There's um, uh, community, the, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on the name. Equity-centered community design. Yes. Equity, I wrote that part too. <laughs> Equity-centered community design, um, human-centered design. And, and all of these are very similar, but, but mm. include some slightly different pieces that, that shift them a little bit. So I think that the beauty of that is you can kind of find a process that best meets your needs. Um, I, I really highly encourage people to look at the ones focused on equity, like liberatory mm. design, um, and, and just understand what these extra lenses that they they actually put into the process mm -hmm. can do to help you make sure that you're thinking with an equity lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated that in the book. I've seen the Stanford Design School five-step process and then all the other variations, how they amend that um, not only was helpful in understanding that, but also helped me better understand the uh, Stanford Design School, right? How it got changed and what got added to it, added clarity. Go ahead, Leslie, what else were you going to add? Yeah, no, and then I think the only other thing I wanted to add was um, the the power of story within the design thinking process. Mm -hmm. So I a lot of my work in digital engagement is focused on social media. As we know, social media algorithms really kind of elevate posts that are on either end of the spectrum, and they don't really foster great discourse, because that's not what the algorithms are built to do. And so if you write a post that's like morally outraged and, and really, you know, incendiary, that's going to get more engagement than a post that really is exploring discourse and really like trying to, to understand ideas and trying to bring people together. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the irony because, you know, social media is this technology that has supreme power to bring people together. And yet it, it does in many cases drive people apart because of mm -hmm. how these algorithms work. Um, design thinking, I think, is kind of the antithesis to that because it structures in listening. So you have to listen to people's stories. There are, are actual steps and exercises that you do as a designer that really force you to sit in empathy and, and understand someone 
um, before passing judgment and deciding what you think is right for them. Mm. And so I, th I think that it, for me, the ethos of design thinking is something that is so needed right now because it is on the other side of the spectrum from where we find ourselves having challenging conversations, which is right now mainly on social media. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate that. Uh, I think so many of us are craving the antidote to this uh, outrage, binary thinking, polarization. I know we have all our guests are coming to us from Canada today, but we just had a mini election here in the United States. And how we uh, went into that and how we talk about it is as just as you described on these polarized either or continuums. So I think so many of us are craving the antidote to that in our culture, in our lives, in our, our national discourse, and then our communities from, from large to small. So this is really exciting. Uh, Julia had mentioned wicked problems and with rather than for two really kind of critical concepts to this. I'd love it to hear from Bethlehem and then Spencer. Uh, if you have some examples that you've seen or experienced around wicked problems or the with rather than for process. Bethlehem, let's start with you. Yeah, so um, from my experience um, writing for the Innovation Hub, I had some opportunities to interview students for a variety of topics. One that I can think of uh, that I've done recently has to do with returning to campus. Mm -hmm. So um, now that school has shifted back to in-person learning, I realized that there's a lot of challenges that students face that actually is not something that is a simple problem that we can just solve. Um, you would think that returning to campus should be a shift that everyone's kind of looking forward to because that's kind of what we've been always been used to. But mm -hmm. there's a lot there that I ended up delving into through these interviews with students to understand that there's actually uh, a lot of changes with hybrid um, models now being used where some students aren't really comfortable with the shift of choosing between virtual or going into campus. Some people really enjoyed being at home because of the comfort of not, know, not having to leave your house and everything being in one space. And then now having to go back to campus, there's the element of finances that you have to think of. Um, also the element of even nervousness or anxiety that comes with being in a space with students um, that you weren't really used to seeing for the past year. So um, through that conversation that I had with students, I realized there's a lot of problems that we can't really put one solution to. And we actually have to delve and listen into each story and understand and empathize with. And I think some of the, the, the wonderful opportunity of working with Innovation Hub as a student is I get to kind of understand that side of it because I'm a student myself. So in a way, I'm trying to also be unbiased and actually hear their experience, but I also feel empathy uh, directly as well as a student. So that's yeah. an example I can think of. Well, and you're bringing your own lens. And I think this is a, this is a great example because we, we have this narrative, the simplified narrative of virtual or in-person and everybody wants in-person because it's normal. It's what we was, we're doing, but you're really complicating that. And I love the use of assessment the use of your own experience and really helping us really empathize. What really are people feeling? What are they experiencing? What are they seeing this? What are they navigating? So we better understand uh, this wicked problem. Go ahead, Julia. If I, yeah, if I may just jump in here too, because I think one of the things is I've learned in doing design thinking work is that 
as human beings, our tendency is really to want to solve the problem. There's a problem, there's a solution, right? That's sort of the, the, the traditional way of thinking. And with wicked problems, there's no one solution, right? There's a lot of complicating factors, as Bethlehem's mentioning about coming back to campus, um, the pandemic, this is a wicked problem. There's so many problems within it, right? And so design thinking really helps us to think about um, all of the different stakeholders, empathize and understand that there's many solutions to wicked problems that and they and no one solution will fix it right and so it's really about spending time steeping in that problem getting to know it um i think we put like an einstein quote in the book that says you know if einstein had an hour to solve a problem he would have spent 55 minutes in the problem and five minutes in the solution and design thinking really says yeah Let's spend that time really understanding the problem, uh, empathizing with the people that have the problem and not jump right to solutions. But as I found working with students and with just people in general, we love to jump right to the solution, right? So understanding what a wicked problem is and that willingness to stay in the problem is a big part of this. Yeah. What a wonderful kind of counterculture reminder here. I love it. Uh, we've talked about wicked problems and a little bit of with rather than for. Spencer, do you have an example that's kind of coming to your mind as we're having this conversation? Oh, yes, definitely. And I'd love to elaborate on the with rather than for perspective. And in fact, I, I would like to say that Julia's underselling almost what she's been able to accomplish leading the Innovation Hub team here in that um, we don't design just with rather than for students, but, you know, as, as Beth and I's existence <laughs> attest to, we design by, uh, like with, excuse me, I messed that up, but not just with rather than for, but by students as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beth and I are students, the majority of people working at the innovation of our students, and we're able to extend not just empathy, but experience. So when uh, Beth and I both have a high level view of the projects because we all work with all the different teams and have a tiny bit of a hand in each different pot at the innovation hub. Um, and with every single project that's going on, uh, I, I'm speaking for myself, of course, but I, I suspect Beth, Beth Lem, you're, um, you have a similar experience in that you identify just a little bit, right? Not just empathy. You don't just understand where the students are coming from. Um, you don't just like feel compassion, but you know what they're going through, right? You have ex either experienced things that they talk about yourself, or uh, you know someone at least who, who's experienced the same things that these students are attesting to. And that perspective, I, I would say, is, is incredibly valuable because even though um, all, all of the permanent staff slash uh, grownups um, <laughs> at the Innovation Hub, uh, Julia and all, all the great rest of the leadership team, even though they are the most empathetic um, semi-administrative staff at U of T, I know, um, it's really the student experience in the present, right? We're going to class, we're going to labs, lectures, we're working on homework at home at three in the morning. That's really coloring our work that we, we pour into these reports and these written deliverables and these presentations administration. And that's something that couldn't be accomplished through any other kind of problem solving lens. Yeah. I think this is really important. The, 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 the present is the word that you said that I'm really sticking with because um, there was a time that we could go back to what happened five years ago to inform what we're doing now, but that's over. Um, you know, things are completely different, completely different in so many ways than they were two years ago. Things are even completely different than they were six months ago. Um, I don't know about what the, what the timing was in Canada, but there was this lovely July 2021 where we thought COVID was over. 
Uh, <laughs> turns out, no, that wasn't. Um, and so there's been all these fits and starts. And so really what is happening now? What are people experiencing now? How are they feeling now? How are they engaging with this now? And all the complexity is really great. Um, uh, in the book, you're also talking a lot about um, using design thinking uh, for organizational change, informing organizational change and assessment, which we've heard a little bit about. Leslie, could you talk a little bit about org change and assessment? Yeah, I think um, the the chapter on organizational change in, in like there's so many theories on on and how you, you listed can... a lot of them. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that each one has its own merits, and so we kind of divided them up into you know theories and processes that describe individual change at the individual level versus theories that describe change at an organizational level. And the the thing that I love about design thinking is that it can it can deal with both. Um, because the process changes people. And so what we what I heard a lot when, when I started talking about design thinking assessment and like how we can shift how we do assessment to gather data and incorporate empathy as a step in our assessment process, there were a lot of people who were saying things like, I will never be able to sell that to my institute. Like my institution, this is too touchy-feely. Like they are never going to want to do this. Like how do you get them to a place where this is like language they would feel comfortable? Like if I say this, they're not going to want to use it. And the, the reality is that you can almost use a design thinking process to get them there because mm. the process itself creates readiness. Mm. And, and that's in some ways why the innovative changes work because the best solution might not work within the culture because you haven't necessarily done the work to shift the culture stories mm. to a place where it's ready to accept the solution. And so like the process brings people in, it helps them feel heard, it generates that buy-in, that groundswell. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's a massive important tool for organizational change. And for decision makers, there's this really fascinating article that came out in the Atlantic several years ago now about how feeling power not necessarily being in a position of power, but feeling powerful actually anesthetizes your empathy. So you, you mm. lose the ability to feel empathy for others. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of like evolutionary theory about why that is. But it, the reality is that if you're, you're feeling power over others and you're making decisions for others, it's very easy to lose connection and to lose empathy for the people you're serving. Mm -hmm. And so it, we have to create structures, processes, and, and things in our environment as leaders to ensure that we're continually returning to our community and to our frontline people to make sure that we're listening and we're empathizing with them. Because otherwise you can get isolated up in your office and you don't know students and you're making decisions for the students you used to have or for the students you want to have, or but not the, the students. Yeah, but not, right. for, not for the people who are there with you right now because you're not with them. Mm -hmm. um, and design thinking really creates ways, like tangible things that you can do to activate your empathy mm -hmm. and make sure that it, you don't lose it. So empathy isn't a thing that we are, that we just inherently have. It is a muscle. You can mm -hmm. practice it. You can get better at it. You can, you can lean on it more and, and develop it. And, and I think that design thinking is like a training program to make sure that you're, you're keeping your empathy at its highest level um, yeah. because otherwise me... you can lose it. You're just reminding me of, uh, we're talking about solutions or strategies, but you're saying culture, right? There's the old saying, culture eats strategies for breakfast, right? Yep. If you don't have a culture that's open to this, that can be really powerful. And this notion of empathy, I just want to mention, we, we've talked about the Stanford Design School or D-School. This process that we keep referring to is empathize, 
define, ideate, yeah. prototype, and then test. And then we loop back around to see how that went, right? And that's where the assessment comes in. Could you talk a little bit about that in connection to assessment? Yeah, so there's a chapter in the book where I basically took the student affairs assessment model we were using and I kind of like Frankensteined it with design thinking <laughs> and added in storytelling because when we're talking about culture and, and data, stories can be data, you can have inputs as stories, but stories are also, we have to make sure that we're putting stories back into the culture to shift that readiness needle. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so when we're, when we're looking at stories, stories are the programming language of our culture. And so we need to really understand what we're putting out there and make sure that those stories are data informed, make sure that they're based in reality, uh, and make sure that they are inclusive and centering the right people as the tellers mm -hmm. of those stories. And design thinking is really how you can make sure that the designers who, you know, with rather than for, are part of generating the stories that are going to affect positive change. And that will fundamentally shift how we do assessment. Um, because then you start to be able to listen to students and listen to what they say and not say anecdotal, like it's a bad word. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can gather those stories and teach people that, you know, they're, there are limitations to how you can use those stories as data, but there's also limitations to quantitative data and how you can use that, that we don't talk about enough. Mm -hmm. there, there's an example, I'll just jump in here real quick. There's an example in the book that I give that I think sort of illustrates this because we, I had a real aha moment in doing design thinking work where we had our sort of inaugural team of folks working on design thinking. The first year we did it, we, we coupled um, staff and students together and, and trained them up and built design teams. And we had an event where we were presenting back some data, including personas uh, to a group of senior administrators um, of what we've learned. And um, there was a persona, I I think it was of a trans student that also had um, some accessibility needs and a, like very intersectional person that we had met with. We, um, we told their story and I had a very senior administrator at the university come up to me after this and say, you know, Julia, I've heard statistics about this particular problem over and over again and I get the reports and I see the surveys, but something about hearing that person's story today, I can't sit with this problem anymore. I have to act. And there's something about this process that changes people because it's so, it tugs on your heartstrings. There's a humanity to it. We can read a report um, about, you know, X percent of students struggle to find community or different sort of stats mm -hmm. like that and say, oh, that's unfortunate, right? What should we do about that? We could do this, we could do that, we, we solve it. But taking that time to really understand, and this is what happened for this student creates this unrest that I think that's where the culture change really starts is when people can't, sit with the problem anymore, that they can't sleep at night anymore until they start to take some mm -hmm. kind of action. That's where real change sort of starts to happen, at least from my perspective of what I've seen. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's the, it's the emotional connection that hearing a person's story does to you. And, and so like our rational thought is what kind of makes us individuals and we can make decisions based on data, like hard data and rational things without considering the, the human impact but you can't listen to somebody's story, have that activate your emotions and then make decisions for them that don't take into account their humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's, that's what I loved about bringing design thinking into how we conduct assessment in student affairs and in higher education. Um, it, there's also a lot of indigenous pedagogy that, that needs to be referenced because storytelling is a key tenet to almost every indigenous pedagogy on the planet. And, there's a reason for that. It's because we are made of stories and it's how we learn and it's how we teach. 
And so I think that without, we have to acknowledge that design thinking in some ways is parts of indigenous pedagogy repackaged. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's a really important consideration to make because it means we're returning to our, our roots as humans trying to make sure that we're appreciating not only our objective thoughts, but also appreciating our emotions and our spirit and, and bringing that into processes where we're creating things for humans. Yeah, you're reminding me, I, I think so many of us, uh, we know better as student affairs professionals, but our mental model is still our own college experience, right? We go back to hearing a conduct hearing about a student in an alcohol case, we're imagining where we were. And the environments have changed, the students have changed, the whole experience is completely different. And so how do we, how do we bring that? Now, I don't think any of us think that's a good idea. And I think if we're honest, we do it. And so this empathy, uh, both uh, as Spencer loves the data and the charts, right? But also the stories and the antidotes, which Brene Brown would say is just data with a soul, uh, bringing that empathy in. And, and as Julie was mentioning, uh, you know, I had a, a boss who was a dean who didn't care much about the numbers, but he, that powerful story would really shift his thinking. His boss, my vice president, didn't care so much about stories, but she loved data. She really wanted the numbers. And so how do we as change makers have both of those at our disposal yeah. to make the case? Um, particularly one of the challenges to those old mental models is they don't reflect the realities of the world, of social media, of all the challenges that students face and the diversity of students. Uh, a big part of the book also is around equity and design thinking. And as you've already pointed to, how do we integrate that in? Do you wanna say a little bit more about equity in design thinking, Leslie? Sure. So I think design thinking is fundamentally about listening and it, and it teaches people mm -hmm. how to listen well and, and it values, it raises the value of emotional needs to the same level as all of the other data that we collect. Um, and I think that those things are really key uh, to the process and, and allow it to be supportive of an equity centered approach. The thing that is really important to consider is that you can do a design thinking process and want to solve an equity problem. But if you don't understand equity and you don't understand your privilege and you don't understand bias, you're still going to come up with bias solutions. <laughs> so you're, you're still going to reinforce inequity. So you, this is not a magic solution to equity. This is a tool that blends well with equity because if you teach your designers to think with equity lenses, this can be incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. um, but if you ignore those things and you center the same people in decision-making yeah. spaces without truly listening, you can, you can still be reinforcing inequity. I'm just so appreciating all of this because it just seems to me uh, it's the antidote to what is going on. It's the antidote to so many of the challenges from oversimplified problems to a lack of empathy, to not really uh, being equitable in how we think about things or who we include or how the solutions happen or how they get brought through. So this is really feeling rich. Uh, we we want to shift and talk about how we do this in student affairs practice, super broadly defined. Um, Spencer, I'm wondering if there are ways that you've seen this play out um, that, that could be really helpful to folks who are maybe listening to this and saying, this is really exciting, but how does this relate to student affairs and student services and housing and conduct and new student orientation and all of the services we're trying to provide? What's kind of coming up for you? Oh, definitely. Actually, I want to jump off on what you just mentioned there, Keith, about oversimplified problems and tie it back to the entire conversation just now in that design thinking um, at least in my experience, has really allowed us to see the problems behind the problems. 
or rather the, the meta problem, so to speak. Um, and one example, I'm, <laughs> one example I'm thinking of just this moment is at the Innovation Hub, we were working on a project called Learning About Failure, right? Where we were interviewing students about how it felt to fail, um, kind of why they, not necessarily why they were failing, but why they thought they were failing, how they could be supported. And the, the beauty of this project really was that normally we don't think of failure as the problem rather it's the outcome of a problem right so if say in the usual kind of conversation we'd say oh x amount of students failed this course we need to rework the course mm -hmm. or um something to that effect you you don't think about the failure as an entity in itself right it's just a, a negative outcome but what we found in this learning through failure project is that the failure itself is valuable you know mm -hmm. failure is a learning experience um and so many students were united in this failure it's there, there is an undercurrent you know in in, in high-powered universities mm -hmm. where we're all overachievers these kind of students that we we don't allow ourselves any sort of leeway in um or flexibility in, in our grades or in our extracurricular achievements and this is very much a unifying undercurrent at uft among the student body and it's not something that anyone had really, really studied before, how, how much failure the feeling was tinging the student body. We were just seeing it as an outcome of, of negative things happening. You know, this right. course is poorly Learn instructed. to avoid at all costs in our exactly. perfectionist, which tendencies, uh, which has lots of roots, included in white supremacy. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and I love that you're reframing failure as learning. Go ahead. I just couldn't help myself, Spencer. Keep going. <laughs> No, no, that encapsulates it perfectly. I, that's pretty much all I want to mention that this um, re, re, reframing of the perspective opened up, of course, new problems, right? How, how to approach this failure culture, but also, in a sense, eliminated some other problems, right? Maybe it's not so bad to, to fail. It, it really, it could be spun as a positive, And that's just part of the university experience. I know, um, Julia, that you mentioned this had a very positive reception among the administration, if you just wanted to, uh, to speak to that a bit. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was, I think, one of the, the key sort of takeaways for folks uh, in student affairs and even in the academic realm was really around allowing space for failure, right? Oftentimes, we get this sort of um, parentalist sort of like we have to cushion things or protect people it's, it's sort of human nature we want to take care of people right uh, and I think as administrative staff we're, we're guilty of that sometimes but to really um, find through the design thinking process in this example that actually giving space for failure creating spaces at the university for failure to feel uh, like something that you can practice doing well or practice experiencing before the stakes are a little bit higher in other spaces was really, really important. Yeah. Um, this failure part, I think, is so critical because I think so many, I, I'm thinking about students, but we apply this to student affairs professionals. Uh, the overachievers who've spent our life, as Spencer mentioned, getting it right, that first failure can be really scary and really threatening. We'll do anything to avoid it. And people who failed a lot really struggled through life for all sorts of reasons, including systematic oppression, feel like I can't fail again, otherwise it's gonna mean that I'm a failure. So I think the, the students who struggle the most and the students who have been the most successful are really averse to failure. Those folks who are in the middle, who've had a little mix of it, had some failures, but it's been okay, they have a better chance of seeing it as a, not, not failure, but oh, I can learn from that and really 
really grow from that. I think it's I a think, really powerful thing when we think about persistence and retention and success and so many things. Go ahead, Leslie. There's there's also a pattern that you see. And if we if we stop if we stop punishing failure and assigning guilt and shame mm. associated with failure, mm. instead treat it as learning, um, we would see a lot more innovation. We would see a lot more uh, exceptional things happening because I tell my kids this all the time, the people who lose the most are also the people who win the most. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we really need to normalize putting yourself out there and risking failure because otherwise you can't achieve excellence. Yeah. Well, well, Beth, we'll go to you for one more example, but I can't resist. As we were watching the Olympics and Suni Lee, who's here from where I am in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, my daughter saying, I want to be a gymnast like her. And I said, in order to be a great gymnast, you have to be willing to be a really bad one first. And that goes to everything. If you want to be a great dancer at weddings, you have to be willing to be a really bad dancer. At <laughs> like if you want to be a great bowler, you have to be willing to be terrible, right? Like that's an essential part in the process. Yes. So I love that. Uh, Bethlehem, what are some, maybe some other examples around student affairs, student services, how we do our work that this could uh, shine some light on? Yes, so I also, the failure aspect is also honed me in as well, but another thing I thought of is about creativity mm -hmm. and how design thinking in a student space is a really a great opportunity for students to also practice their creative aspects, to know that it's not just, you know, our academics that we always just have to focus on, but there's a way that we can also practice and bring our ideas into the university and bring it to life through creative creative thinking. And I think there was actually a blog post that I kind of explored that idea of creativity where we can actually see innovation being put into place by giving a space for students to creatively fail <laughs> in a way where we can um, practice and ideate together and discuss our ideas and come up with new ways of approaching a problem. And I think students actually would be a perfect way to be able to incorporate this using design thinking in university because we have our experience as, as students as well. And then there's also new ideas that we bring in into these problem sets. And I think that that's something creativity is very important for, for higher education. And um, I also noticed that design thinking is part of creativity and failure. Without innovation, without failure, there's no innovation and creativity is part of that. So I, I think that's something I think that we can also explore a bit more within higher education. Yeah. Just add, or, and we'll go to you, Julia, the, the creativity is so important and we for forever have had the story that uh, higher ed is slow to change. And then last March, we changed like that. Uh, uh, we had a colleague on the podcast, uh, Ebony Zabani Gallagher, who said, we proved that we can change on a dime. We can do it in a day. That doesn't mean we did it well. So now how do we change and create and innovate well? And I think design thinking is a great process to add to that. Julia, what were you going to add? Yeah, I just want to, this point about student affairs, I had to jump in because I really think in our institutions, our students are our greatest assets. Speaking of creativity, speaking of diversity and equity, um, there's a really great uh, equity center designer that I love and admire, Antoinette Carroll. Uh, we talk about her in the book. She, uh, her, her group did the equity center community design. She talks about this idea of equity designers and equity allies. And you only get to be an equity designer if you identify as part of the group that you're designing for equity allies are the rest of us who are not technically part of the group. So us in student affairs, 
technically most of us aren't students anymore. Some of us are still, <laughs> it's still uh, pursuing academics. But really when we think about the diversity of our student body in our work at the Innovation Hub, and I think this is how it should be done, we have to bring students into that work. So there's so many times where we sit around in a room full of staff and faculty and talk about students and what they need and what they want and how we're gonna retain them and all those conversations. And I'm a big advocate for, for me as an ally, I have to really advocate for let's bring those students into the conversation. And Leslie and Gavin and I, when we when we wrote this book, really talked about that. That's why we dedicated to students. That's the point we really want to emphasize is that, um, I mean, all three of us identify as white, cisgendered, settlers. You know, we have, there's a lot of sort of privilege in our own positionality in writing this book. And we know that and understand that. But I think one of the things that we have to do as allies is that we have to do the work, right? We have to participate. And this is our contribution. Um, and we've had conversations at length about that. But we're not the designers, right? Our, our role is to really enable and, and educate and equip and get out of the way for, in our case, students to be the designers of their own reality, right? And so looking for meaningful ways to do that and bringing in all that richness and creativity and all the skill sets that we have right in our own sort of backyards here in the schools, right, is, is really, really a critical part Right, and really connecting it to uh, a really student-centered or inclusive process and how uh, rather than the people holding the process being the solution finders, they're really holding a process. And I think we can we can benefit from that in so many different aspects. Yeah. Of our and I, I just to, just to add to that, too, I think that a lot of people look at this process and they're kind of like, well, like sometimes I there's a grant due or like I got to mm -hmm. I got to produce and I don't have time to do mm -hmm. this whole process and bring students in at every level because it does take time. And, and I would just push back and say that, you know, how many times do we start programs that get run into the ground because we didn't do the upfront work? It costs more, it, it's less efficient if we don't do it right from the beginning. And you need to generate that buy-in, that, that culture shift, that readiness in order to land the right solution. So you can have the best solution in the world and it might be the greatest program ever and it won't be accepted by the community unless you go through a process where you bring the community in at the beginning. Well, you're, you're talking about programs on a college campus, but we can talk about efforts to address racism in communities, uh, policing, schooling, poverty, so many different things that, that we're all facing. Well, as we knew we would, we are, we are all excited, we're all energized, and we are running out of time. Uh, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. Uh, we like to end with the question, what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? And if you want to add where folks can connect with you, uh, please go ahead and add that. Beth, let's start with you. What are you troubling now? Yes, um, that's a very good question. There's a lot to think about. Um, I think um, equity is something I really do want to explore more about um, within student spaces because it's something I think when it comes to privilege, we all have some sort of form of privilege. And I think mm -hmm. wherever there is privilege or an advantage that someone has, there's someone that has a disadvantage. And I think that is something we have to kind of think more internally for ourselves. What is an advantage that we have that others don't have? And how can we minimize that gap? And how, how can we individually in our own spaces do that within student life or even in any other system that we're part of? So that's something that's very troubling for me. I know it's not like a one size fit all kind of approach that oh. we can do. It's probably going to take a lot of time, but um, just from this conversation, I'm really sparked by that. I 
that topic actually and something I, I really want to explore more of. Sounds like a wicked problem, Bethlehem. Really great <laughs> modeling here. Excellent. Uh, Spencer, what is what is uh, what are you pondering or troubling now? Um, I'm just dwelling on uh, to date this podcast a little for future listeners um, about the pandemic and returning to campus, right? I um, There's definitely so much to be done in the academic sphere, you know, the in-person slash online slash facilitation of everyone, international students, et cetera. That's, that's all been thoroughly studied, but the student experience is more than just academics, of course. And there's an entire generation of student clubs who've lost year of funding, entire generation of first years who have no extracurricular experience because they couldn't experience university at all in first year. And that's that's a loss that's unquantifiable um, to the student experience, right? You, you can't put a number on how much of the outside of the classroom experience students have, have lost over COVID-19. And really the only way to approach that problem is with design thinking, I would say. And um, it's something that really bears looking at, looking towards. Um, I think to encapsulate the entire conversation, the, the quote that's been dwelling with me is that you can't empathize with a statistic. Um, and I just want to put that out there because that's been pinging around in my head for the last 10 minutes. So um, well, yeah. look what you've done. You've created this physics and stats major into this big <laughs> empathy advocate. It's so <laughs> great. Thank you, Spencer. hundred oh, uh, percent. Leslie, uh, what's, uh, what is with you now? Yeah, I, uh, I've been thinking a long time about what the real purpose of higher education is and, and what, it, what its structure, like how it's structured right now, what that accomplishes and, and how that's misaligned, I think, with what we hope higher education does, which is support greater learning and innovation. And, and right now, unfortunately, I look at a lot of the colonial aspects of the way our system works mm-hmm. and, and higher education right now is, is almost like a, like a social case ticket. Um, Mm. And so we have to be very conscious of our power as change makers within education, which is probably one of the single most powerful tools we have to shift our culture aside from social media. Um, And, and yeah, like I'm looking at how technology is going to disrupt it Mm. and how, how learning might change, might change for the better or for the worse. Um, And I'm thinking a lot about, I am thinking a lot about social media and how we've handed the keys to our culture to private enterprises and their algorithms in a way that has never happened before in humanity. It used to be that, you know, like the media industry was our, was our cult, our culture holder, um, but, but it was driven by market forces. And, and now we've handed over our culture and our psychology to, to these companies that manage how we communicate and what mm. we see and how we talk to each other. And it's, it's scary to me because it changes what, what's possible for us. Mm-hmm. I love the, the hope and then a realistic call to action, a sense of urgency that you're bringing with us. Julia, what, are, what is with you now? Oh, wow. So inspired by everything my colleagues have all shared here. Thank you, Bethlehem and Spencer and, and Leslie and Keith. Um, for me, I guess one thing that's percolating always is the people aspect of design thinking, um, that really design thinking can change the people that get involved in it. But also this piece on equity that inequity and systems of oppression in our society are by design, right? They're designed that way. We know that. Um, And design thinking can be a tool for designing for equity, but we have to use it intentionally, right? And I I don't want to lie. I mean, there's a lot of ways that design thinking has been used to perpetuate the status quo. And so we want to really emphasize that focus on those those equity-centered uh, design models and bring the right people into the process. And I think through, through doing this work, 
what I've learned is that there's no better way to connect um, students to each other, for example, in this work, than having one student talk to another student in depth about their experience. And really something magical happens. Both students feel really good about that. It's this great connection, but also we realize just um, there are these sort of universal unmet needs that we need to explore. So yeah, I guess I'm thinking about this idea of because inequity is by design, we need to think about equity by design as well. Mm -hmm. And there's intentionality to that. I love that. We should be talking about. Well, that's where we're going to end it. That's so good. Uh, that's, that's a really great way to kind of summarize it. Uh, I want to thank all of you so much for being here. Uh, Julia and Leslie, congratulations on the new book. Uh, Spencer and Bethlehem, thank you so much for bringing uh, the student-centered perspective and your perspective as students. Um, this has been really wonderful. Uh, we want to, as we conclude, thank our sponsors of today's episode, Stylus and EverFi. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Including this book, you can use promo essay now for 30% off all books, plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at styluspub. And EverFi, for over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. With efficacy studies behind their courses, you will have confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at everfi.com slash studentaffairsnow. Huge shout out to Nat Ambrosi, the production assistant of the podcast Behind the Scenes, who makes us all look and sound good. If you're listening today and not already receiving our newsletter, uh, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. Get the latest every Wednesday morning about the newest episodes coming out. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guest today and everyone who is watching and listening. Make it a great week, all. Thank you. Thank you.